Get ready for an encounter with some seriously heavy metal. Get ready for hardware. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another mini episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, on my own today. Nat will not be able to join us this week. But instead of skipping the week, we thought we'd put out another one of these little mini-episodes. The idea here is that although we wanted to cover as much of 1990 as we could in our first season of the podcast, there were plenty of films that got left on the cutting room floor. And these mini-episodes are a great excuse for me to visit those on my own and just give you my quick extemporaneous thoughts on them instead of doing the whole full kit and caboodle with Nat. The episode we're covering today, I'm really excited to talk about. It's October here in Vermont. I love Halloween. I love scary movies. I thought it would be great to find a horror film that we weren't going to be able to cover and do it as a mini. And so I settled on Richard Stanley's Hardware. This is a fun mashup of Alien and Terminator and Mad Max, part slasher film, part killer robot film, part post-apocalyptic dystopia. And I have to say, this being the first time I've seen it, it is a deeply flawed film, but it is also the work of somebody who clearly has talent and clearly has vision. I mentioned already, that's the writer and director, Richard Stanley. That name may sound familiar, and that's because after like 20 years in filmmaking exile, Stanley returned to cinemas just last year with The Color Out of Space, a pretty solid Lovecraft adaptation starring Nicolas Cage. He's from South Africa originally. He gets his start making music videos and documentaries. He builds on that here. He's got cameos from a couple of fun musicians. Uh, but this is his feature debut. He has a couple films after this, but his career is completely derailed by the legendary disaster that was the island of Dr. Moreau in 1996. This might be the single worst implosion in cinema history. Stanley was fired after three days of filming. He had already alienated himself from the studio New Line because he didn't like to attend production meetings. And when he arrived in location in Australia, it was socked in by monsoon rains. Marlon Brando, who was set to star in the film, hadn't arrived on set. Val Kilmer was being a major bully and very difficult to work with, as he often was at that time. Rob Morrow, who was the ostensible lead of the film, quit after two days. He called Rob Shea, the head of New Line, and sobbing, asked to be released from the film. And the next day, the on-set executives had an emergency meeting and they sent a fax to Stanley and said, you're fired. And that was it. He did not make another Hollywood film until Color Out of Space. But this movie, and then what he's been able to do in the time since, really shows that there was something there. And if not for that failure, we might have had a very exciting and interesting cult director on our hands. The other piece of context that's important to talk about before we get into this movie is post-apocalyptic cinema. Because this is coming at the tail end of two solid decades of a tremendous number of post-apocalyptic films. It was 
the probably the most prominent sci-fi subgenre. I mean, it makes sense why you can make it on Earth with limited production value. Uh, just find a deserted location or an abandoned city. But I think it also does a great job of reflecting the ills of modern society. It's so easy to extrapolate those and show how they cause the apocalypse or how they continue on past the apocalypse. So it becomes a favorite of socially conscious directors. Plus, it's a great excuse to have violence and nudity. So all the exploitation filmmakers are making it as well. This movie is very much a part of that tradition. I already mentioned Mad Max. This movie is trading heavily on that desert apocalypse aesthetic. But it also borrows a lot from Damnation Alley, which was a story that was adapted into a film in 1977. There's specific call-outs to Soylent Green, which was a post-apocalyptic film in 73. So this movie exists within and is in dialogue with this really prolific part of the genre. It doesn't have a lot to say about it. It's more homage and pastiche than commentary. But the more post-apocalyptic films you have under your belt seeing this one, the more you can appreciate, one, what Stanley was able to do with a very limited budget. This is one of the best-looking films of its weight class I've seen. And two, what his sources of inspiration might be. We should get into the film proper. The movie begins with a drifter crossing through a red desert. And already the film is extremely visually striking. I love the imagery here as he uncovers a minefield out in the dunes and there's just pieces of robots, including like a hand sticking out of the sand. And the design of the drifter with his gas mask and his goggles is also really solid. Uh, It's just really right off the bat making use of what was available to Stanley and what set him apart. These desert sequences were shot in Morocco as he was returning from Afghanistan. So he was able to use his one job to support the next job, and it really helps bolster this film's production credentials. We cut from the drifter to uh, a scrap shop. We get a great establishing shot across a smoking field of rubble as men in duster jackets uh, pick their way across the debris. We meet our main character, Moses, played by Dylan McDermott. And we meet his friend, Shades, played by John Lynch. I just wanted to quickly talk about McDermott because this actually happens really early in his career. Um, and he's got one of those faces, right, where he like he hasn't seemed to age in 30 years. So he looks exactly the same here as he did on The Practice and then everything else he's done on TV since. Prior to this, he had a couple of small credits in things like Hamburger Hill and Steel Magnolias. Um, but this was one of his first lead roles. The film wasn't a major success, and he wouldn't really break out as an actor until In the Line of Fire in 1993. What I'll say about him in this movie is he has charisma. And performances are often the weak point of these low-budget, exploitation-adjacent films. And that's not really the case here. He's not fully in line with the film. You know, he's got his perfectly coiffed hair, and he's a little bit too comfortable and a little bit too handsome for all of the grimy nastiness that's going on. But he carries the scenes just fine. He's never distractingly bad. I can't say the same for Lynch. Shades is one of the major characters in the film and keeps popping up. And I'm not sure if it's the fault of the characters written or the performance, but I hated 
everything about him. He is debilitated by drug addiction, it seems, and so he exists to ratchet up the tension by failing to act, which is one of my least favorite plot mechanisms of all time. Uh, I talked about it in an earlier film. I guess it was in an earlier mini in uh, uh, um, Rescuers Down Under, where when you have a character act stupid just to make failure seem more plausible, all that does is annoy me with that character's stupidity. Also in this scene, we meet uh, Alvy, a junk trader, very Mad Max-inspired here, played by Mark Northover from Willow. Uh, there's a really great exchange where the drifter from the opening prologue comes in. He's played by Carl McCoy from the band Fields of the Nephilim. And Stanley has this great way of framing him, where just his eyes are in light and the rest of his face is in shadow, that gives him this almost supernatural feel. And it really does make the movie seem as much like a ghost story as a sci-fi tale. And I think that's to its strengths. At this point in the film, I was locked in and I was really excited to see where it would go. It gave me shades of Stranger Comes to Town films. We talked about this on To Sleep With Anger, but I was thinking like needful things. You know, this guy has delivered destruction to Moses. Uh, he is, you know, the devil. He is the man in black. Now, I kind of wish they had been able to play with that a little bit more. But certainly the ideas are present, and it's almost all through Stanley's direction and not through the scripting or anything else. The traitor has brought back something he found out in the dunes, some kind of robot, uh, though nobody seems to know precisely what it is. It has a really fantastic design for its skull, where it's just it just looks like the top half of a human skull, but with camera lenses in its eyes. The design like of the robot in isolation is all pretty great, especially emphasized here. It's hands with its weird claw like fingers are pretty frightening. Its face is, you know, terrifyingly skull like once it all gets put together, it looks pretty stupid, but I'll talk about that more later. Moses buys the robot remains from the drifter. He leaves a hand with Alvi in his shop and takes the rest with him to his girlfriend, Jill. And then we cut to Jill's place and we meet our other major character. Jill is played by Stacey Travis, an actress I didn't recognize and who doesn't really seem to have any major breakout credits in the rest of her filmography. I think she's pretty good in this film. Like McDermott, she is a cut above the kind of actors I would expect in a film like this. And she feels more in tune with the tone of the piece than McDermott does. We also get our cameo from Iggy Pop on the radio, basically doing a dry run for his voice part in GTA 4. And I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the way that this film handles the post-apocalypse, because it was another thing I really liked. Early on in this film, I was just really vibing with it. This isn't a post-apocalypse where society has completely collapsed. Instead, society is kind of limping on. There's still a government. There's still television. Jill is an artist. Which is such a, uh, you know, a function of, like, a stable society that somebody could spend their life making art. Uh, that I just kind of love that she's in place here. We get these great news broadcasts of 
the government trying to uh, enact a sterilization law and how people are waiting in lines around the block to, for their chance to be sterilized so that they can't have kids. And it is just this great sort of almost Fallout-esque uh, um, satire of a government completely gone to seed, completely decayed. I particularly liked the television sequences, which are really frightening in how horrifying they are. We cut from animals being butchered to newsreels of people, of prisoners being executed uh, um, to then like really uh, intense metal and punk music. And everything about it is really violent and frightening and speaks of a culture that exists in a world that is violent and frightening. It's at about this point that the movie started to lose me though, because after we've done all this great world building, we've met all our characters, the movie then sits for a long, long time with Jill, with Moses, continuing to flesh out their characters without fleshing out the plot. It's a tricky balancing act because it's easy for a movie to be all plot and no characterization, which is just as tedious. But this movie goes too far in the other direction, and I found myself by the 45-minute mark just praying to God that this robot would kill somebody already so that something would happen. Instead, we get some sex scenes. We meet a voyeur who's uh, spying on Jill's apartment. Voyeur is absolutely grotesque and played by William Hootkins, who is Porkins in the original Star Wars. Uh, he's wonderfully disgusting in this film. One of the standout characters um, in the worst possible way. Like, he's absolutely horrible. But he does add some spice to these sequences that are otherwise kind of tedious. Throughout all this, we see that the robot is starting to come back to life. We learn that it's an advanced military model that's self-repairing and that can recharge its batteries from energy sources around it. And we see it slowly starting to reassemble itself, kind of as like a proto-T-1000, except it's all mechanical components. It also reminded me of the Iron Giant when all the pieces kind of come back together and screw themselves together. It's actually, it's pretty cool stuff, mostly done through stop-motion animation. I really like that part of it. But the robot still isn't actually killing anybody. And instead, we've got Alvy researching the origins of the robot and then calling uh, Moses and telling him he has to rush over there, so Moses leaves Jill alone. And after about 45 minutes of world-building and characterization, we finally get to some robot action. First, we see the robot hand that had been left in Alvy's workshop come to life and kill him with a poison. And then we see the robot attacking Jill in her apartment. There's the scene of a pretty solid idea here where she has locked herself down to try and prevent the outside world from getting in at her. But that means it's impossible for her to escape when she's finally being attacked. The geography of the apartment isn't like particularly well established and the apartment itself doesn't have enough interesting things for Jill to interact with to really sell that. It might have been more fun if the robot was loose in the entire apartment building, although I imagine that would have been impossible given the budget of this film. But we have her surviving an initial assault by the robot. There's a pretty good bit where she crawls into the fridge because she realizes that the robot has infrared vision. Um, I always like characters doing creative problem solving. That was perfectly fine. Sometime around here, uh, William Hootkins arrives at the apartment under the pretense of trying to rescue Jill, perhaps. 
um, but also trying to make moves on her. His motivation is not particularly clear, and the scene is just more uncomfortable than, than tense. Of course, it ends with Hootkins being slaughtered by the robot um, in the first of what are some pretty solid kills in this film. He gets lifted into the air. He gets impaled by a giant screw. He gets his eyes gouged out by robot hands. He gets injected by these poison syringes that come out of the bottom of the robot's face like fangs on a vampire or like fangs on a spider. Uh, so all that's pretty good. Pretty If you like good gore, there's some solid stuff here. Jill is still trapped inside with the robot, however, and so this continues on. And for a while, I thought this might be the whole movie. It's just her and the robot together in the apartment because it does sort of have the rough shape of what could be the entire film in it. Um, you know, she tries to escape it multiple times and fails. Characters try to assist her and they fail. Ultimately, she traps it in the kitchen and detonates um, an explosive and the robot blows up, and right at that moment, Moses returns with shades in tow and with the building security with him, and they blow the robot out the window with shotguns. And for a little bit, I kind of thought the movie was over, mostly just because even though nothing's really happened that in the movie so far, one person has died, I guess two people have died to the robot, and there hasn't been a lot of build there hasn't been a lot of structure it really did feel like the end of the movie and the movie suffers from that multiple times here in the last act where it keeps feeling like it's reached a natural conclusion and then it will start another finale that doesn't feel like it's building out the previous one just like it's another one tacked on to it because, of course, the robot survived its trip out the window. It comes back and drags Jill out the window instead. She winds up several floors below. And now the robot is facing off against Moses in Jill's apartment. And this doesn't turn out to be a particularly big action scene. The robot almost immediately injects Moses with poison. And he just kind of succumbs and has flashes of what his life might have been like if he had been able to live with Jill instead of in the horrible wasteland where they live here and where he has to make a living going out and scrapping again the stuff is weirdly inert you know instead of having a showdown with our ostensible hero and the robot the robot is kind of powered down at this point and mcdermott is just sitting by the window we get a series of absolutely bizarre shots of the camera zooming in um just dollying and tilting into the robot as it's drawing power from this computer console. And it's sort of like leaning forward um, with its head out so that it looks like somebody like hanging off of a bar, uh, like a set, like a hanging through a doorway in like an MTV music video. And it doesn't help that the orchestra here is like going really nuts in kind of a cheesy way. And I found this part almost laughable in its execution, which was a shame because so much of the film felt very confidently directed and uh, um, very well shot and designed. This part here was really, uh, it stood out in, in, in its failure of execution. After Moses dies, Jill returns to the apartment. We kind of have this problem in the sequence where all of our major characters are together, but they have to keep isolating them 
So first Jill falls down the stairs and all the other characters except for Moses go with her so that Moses can show up against the robot. Then Jill goes back up the stairs and all the other characters come with her again, but then they get trapped by the door. We do get a really solid kill here where these crazy security doors that Jill has in her apartment bisect a guy, cut him in half, and then while he's being cut in half, he shoots another guy in the head. It's That stuff's pretty good. I, I enjoyed that as far as the gore and kill factor goes. Jill faces off against the robot again. She has a baseball bat. Again, this felt pretty feeble because... This thing has survived multiple shotgun blasts at point-blank range. I'm not sure what Jill thinks she's going to accomplish with the baseball bat. Ultimately, the robot chases her into the bathroom, and she winds up in the shower. We had learned early on what Alvy was doing his research, that the robot was vulnerable to moisture. The movie sets up several times that she has this water-boiling contraption that I assumed was going to be part of that, but ultimately it decides to use the shower instead, as she's trying to escape, Jill accidentally triggers the shower and the robot succumbs to the water. And that's the end of the film. Moses is dead. Jill is alone. The robot has been destroyed. It may or may not have been created by the government in its attempt to sterilize people, or it may be a result of some kind of armed conflict that's happening. There's a, um, a great reference in one of the newscasts to a Christmas ceasefire that goes horribly awry and hundreds die. In, in, in some kind of conflict, but it's, it's solid world-building stuff there. And ultimately, I was left with the feeling that there are a few sparks of genius here, from the design to a few of the sequences um, and a few of the kills, but the film just can't hold itself together. I'm glad Stanley has been able to make more films. I'm really glad that he was able to return after Island of Dr. Moreau, and I'm really excited to see what he's going to do over the next couple of years. But in 1990, he had a lot to learn anyway that's a mini episode on hardware if you like post-apocalyptic films if you like robot films you're looking for something a little bit spooky to watch this october by all means check it out thanks to andy gagnon for our music jackie saltzman for our artwork please remember to rate review subscribe and follow us on social media and join us next week thanks everyone for listening this is Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Back to the movies.